Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome back to the Bible Basics webinar. We're so glad that you can join us for week 47, and we're looking forward to two presentations this evening. The first is on the prophet Isaiah, and in our second half, we're going to look at the New Covenant. And I'll just turn the uh, class over to David now to talk about the prophet Isaiah and his prophecy. David? Thanks, Dan, and good evening, everybody. Thank you for joining us once again. And we were just commenting uh, before some of you may have come online that uh, it's almost been a year. What an amazing, uh, amazing thing that we've been doing these seminars for almost a year. And uh, hopefully is a good resource for you because all of the classes have been archived and uh, you can go back. And now with the overviews of the different books of the Bible as well, you get a nice little summary of uh, each book of the Bible, along with many themes and characters and principles we examined along the way. Well, as Dan mentioned, our first session this evening is the prophet Isaiah and his prophecy. We find when we turn to the book of Isaiah uh, that Isaiah were introduced as the son of Amos. His name means, because it's a Hebrew word, Isaiah, and it means the Lord is salvation. And it's interesting because it's actually the, the same meaning as Jesus' name in the Old Testament. So Jesus is a Greek name, but would have been based on the Hebrew name in the Old Testament of Joshua, which is the Lord saves. So you have almost the same meaning as Isaiah, as you do with the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there's no mistaking uh, why that is. And we'll see as we go through our introduction to the prophet Isaiah tonight, that much of what Isaiah talks about in his prophecy um, is in fact about the Lord Jesus Christ and about what he would do, what he would accomplish in his life. We find that Isaiah prophesies for about 60 years. It makes him one of the longest prophets as we'll see in a minute on a chart we've looked at before. He prophesied in the south, and you can see on the map to the right side of the screen there, you've got a purple area, which is called Judah. That was the tribes of Israel that dwelled in the south, and then the green area was Israel. So the prophet Isaiah concerned himself and spoke in the territory of Judah. And there's a good reason, because during the reign of these kings, something quite significant was going on in the northern kingdoms. And the kings uh, that he prophesied during, reigns he prophesied during, were called Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. You may remember some of those names as we went through some of the kings in our earlier webinars. Well, here's that chart we've shown you before. Um, it's got a lot of information on it, a lot of details. And you can see a breakdown of the kings of the north. That's the yellow band here. So those correspond to the green area on the map that we just looked at. And what we've learned from previous webinars is that there were no good kings in the north. Starting off with the very first king, there was a rebellion against God's way of worship. And right through the whole history of the kings in the north, you had kings that continued in wickedness, and the consequence was significant for the people. Then in the southern tribes of Judah, the purple area of the map, here you've got the kings which extend beyond 
the kingdom of Israel in the north. And you can see here at the end that this was because the kings of the north were carried away and the people of the north were carried away by the Assyrians. Now, some of this history becomes relevant to the prophet Isaiah. In fact, it's the context of some of his Bible prophecies. And right in there at the bottom there, in between the kings in Israel and the kings of Judah, we can see Isaiah. And you can see the length of his prophecy spanning those three kings that we mentioned previously. So this was the prophet Isaiah, a long ministry, uh, someone who served the Lord faithfully for a very long time, for a lifetime. Well, as I mentioned, Isaiah wrote during a, pe a period of great upheaval, and there was unrest, even more than unrest. I would call it terror that was happening in the north. The Assyrian kingdom was expanding, and the northern, the northern kingdom of Israel, that green area that we saw on the map, was facing decline, both spiritual decline and also uh, physical decline, and ultimately imminent disaster because of the moral decay that had taken place because of that poor leadership that we highlighted on our last slide. There were also significant problems in Judah where Isaiah was prophesying. And as a result, God would use the Assyrians, though he did not condone their methods, he used their armies to overthrow Israel and to cast them out of the land because of their wickedness. And he even started during the days of Isaiah to allow Assyria to come down into the southern tribes of Judah. And we'll consider that further um, in a few minutes. A parallel prophecy uh, in the north. So Isaiah is there in the south talking to Judah, the kings of Judah and the people of Judah. And up in the north, there was another prophet that was prophesying around the same time. His name was Amos. And Amos says this. This is a, a very modern version, the contemporary English version. You will be the first to be dragged off as captives. Now, within Israel, he's talking to the rich people in the land, people that liked having lots of parties. And he says, you will be the first ones dragged off as captives. Your good times, your parties will come to an end. The Lord God, all-powerful, has sworn by his own name, you descendants of Jacob make me angry with your pride. I hate your fortresses, and so I will surrender your city and possessions to your enemies. This is what was happening in the north. And if you look at a summary of what was going on spiritually within the nation, it says in 2 Kings 17 that Israel caused their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire. They used divination and enchantments. They went to witchcraft and wizardry. They sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. And they were successful. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel, and he removed them out of, their, out of his sight. There was none left but the tribe of Judah only. And so that's the context within which Isaiah is giving his prophecy. Israel in the north is soon to be carried off. And during his prophesying, during his ministry, they would indeed be carried away by the Assyrians. And the Assyrians would also come down and start taking some of the cities of Judah as well. Well, if we take a look at uh, the prophecy of Isaiah at a glance, 
there's a, a neat study guide. Remember way back, maybe uh, week two or three, Mike Moore took us through a bunch of Bible study tools that we can use. Well, one of those Bible study tools that's helpful in that it gives us a nice little overview of every book of the Bible is one called Nelson's Complete Book of Bible Maps and Charts. And this chart I've reproduced from that book. And what it does is gives us a snapshot of the prophecy of Isaiah. And you can see it's broken down across the top there into three areas of focus. The first half of the book, uh, chapters 1 through 35, uh, deal primarily with prophecies of condemnation or prophecies of judgment, although there is a mixture uh, within those. This is a general focus that's provided. And then there's this uh, parenthetical section in the middle of Isaiah, which deals with Hezekiah, because that was one of the major kings that Isaiah prophesied during, and he had a lot to do with Hezekiah. And so there's four chapters that tell us about Hezekiah's salvation from the Assyrians. In fact, in Hezekiah's day, the Assyrians came right up to the city walls of Jerusalem. And Isaiah was involved in Hezekiah's salvation and in some of the pronouncements that came from God against the Assyrians and also on behalf of the nation of Israel or the tribes of Judah in the south. Deals with his salvation from the Assyrians, his sickness, and also then how he was lifted up in pride and committed sin in the end before God. And then the last section, the last 26 books of Isaiah, deal with prophecies that are more focused on comfort. There's prophecies about Israel's deliverance, about Israel's deliverer, which is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, and about the hope of Israel. Now, it's interesting we don't have this on the slide here, but Isaiah is made up of 66 chapters, which also happens to be the number of books of the Bible. 66 books of the Bible, 66 chapters in Isaiah. And the first 39 chapters of Isaiah focus more on Old Testament principles and Old Testament prophecies. Things that were happening immediately around Israel in that day. Prophecy against Judah that would come to pass in that day. Prophecy against the nations that surrounded Israel in that day. And there happens to be 39 books in the Old Testament. And then from chapter 40 on, we have a distinct focus on the Messiah. Prophecies about God's Savior, about the Lord Jesus Christ. And there happens to be 26 chapters, books in the New Testament, just as there are 26 chapters covering this section. So that's another way we can remember the prophecy of Isaiah, that it's somewhat aligned with the Old Testament, 1 through 39, and the New Testament, 40 through 66. So I hope that snapshot is helpful in giving you an overview of the prophecy of Isaiah. Now I want to take a look at some archaeological finds and the prophecy of Isaiah. It's always exciting when archaeologists uncover uh, things from the earth, artifacts that prove the veracity of the scriptures. And that's the case in the prophecy of Isaiah. I'm going to highlight just three, but in fact, there are countless archaeological findings that prove 
different aspects of the prophecy of Isaiah. Here's an example in Isaiah chapter 20. There's a detail that Isaiah records in his prophecy. He says, in the year that Tartan came to Ashdod, and then in brackets he puts, when Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent him. Well, this prism that you see on the screen before you, located in the British Museum, describes Sargon, the king of Assyria, sending an army against Ashdod. And so the events that are recorded in Isaiah 20 are also recorded in this stone prism, as it is called, that's been found in an archaeological dig and today resides in a museum. Even more fascinating than this is that in 1946, in a cave in Qumram, Israel, a copy of the entire scroll of Isaiah was found, which was then dated back to 125 to 150 BC. They didn't just find one chapter of Isaiah. They found on these scrolls that were 2,000 years old, the whole prophecy of Isaiah. And then they found in caves later, again, other copies of the whole prophecy of Isaiah. And the, there were almost no changes between those scrolls and the scriptures that we have today. So not only do we have proof of some of the facts that are brought up by the prophet Isaiah, as we see in the top uh, example there, but we actually have proof that the prophecy of Isaiah that we read in our Bibles today, at least in literal translations, your mind might go back again to one of those early webinars that we spoke of, that in literal translations, we're still reading the same words that were recorded on that scroll over 2,000 years ago. It gives us great confidence that the Bible we read today is an accurate copy of the Word of God. And here's one more example in Isaiah 36, that parenthetical section that we spoke of in the prophecy of Isaiah, where uh, Isaiah talks about the king of Israel's salvation from the Assyrians. We read that the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh from Lachish to Jerusalem unto King Hezekiah with a great army. And in that relief that is shown on the screen before you, it depicts inhabitants of Lachish, that was in Judah, that are being killed by the Assyrian army at the command of the Assyrian king. Time and time again, when archaeological digs uncover artifacts related to Bible history, they prove that the Bible is in fact accurate. And it's fascinating for us as Bible students. I want to spend a few minutes then looking at what we might consider a central theme in Isaiah. We saw that those latter 26 chapters of Isaiah are messianic chapters. In fact, many of them tell us about the insights and the feelings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, here's just a sampling. We've got a chart coming up in a minute that gives some more details. But here's a sampling of prophecies that Isaiah made about Jesus Christ. He says in Isaiah 7, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Butter and honey shall he eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. And that was a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ's birth. A virgin, Mary, would conceive and bring forth a son, and God would bring salvation 
through him. And God would be with his people through him. And of course, he would grow up refusing the evil and choosing good. We learn about his lineage in the prophecy of Isaiah. There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse. A branch shall go out from his roots. Now, Jesse was the father of David. And David, you may recall from one of our earlier sessions, was promised that he would have a son that would sit on his throne, a a son down in his lineage that would be also the son of God, and God would be his father. And so we're told the same thing in Isaiah 11, that Jesus would be the son of David. He would come forth from Jesse, David's father. And look what it says would be upon him as he grew up. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. We think of the Lord Jesus Christ's baptism when the spirit in the form of a dove descended upon our Lord. And he was granted the power of the Holy Spirit, God's power without measure. He was given the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and was made of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. We learn about Jesus' ministry in the prophet Isaiah. Now we're in the second portion of Isaiah's prophecy, the messianic portion, where we read of servant songs, songs and prophecies about Jesus as God's servant. And so we read in Isaiah 42, Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth, I have put my spirit upon him, and he shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break. A smoking flax shall he not quench. Because the Lord in his wisdom knew how to respond perfectly to every circumstance that came before him. Well, we learn also about the education of our Lord when he was a young man. In Isaiah 50, it says that he was woken morning by morning by the angels and was taught. And it says at the end of that, the Lord God hath opened mine ear and I was not rebellious, neither turned I away back. And of course, that's a picture of our Lord who was obedient to his father, even to the cross. We have prophecies about his death. In Isaiah, a sad song in Isaiah 53 that talks about Jesus at his crucifixion and leading up to his crucifixion. He's despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him, and we can think of his disciples, all of whom turned away in those last hours. And we think of the stories of Peter that hid his face, that turned his back on his Lord in his last hours. He was despised and we esteemed him not. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. And finally, we have prophecies in Isaiah about the kingdom. And you can see this one is actually from Isaiah chapter two. So it's not that Isaiah is 100% broken up in the way that we showed in that chart. Generally, that's just the overall focus of the different sections. But even in the the prophecies of condemnation, there are these beacons of hope 
that are in the prophecy of Isaiah, such as Isaiah 2, which speaks about a day in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's host will be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. And if we were to read on in that, we would see that what we're talking about is a house of worship that will be built in Jerusalem where the Lord Jesus Christ will reign from. And so we have this complete picture of Christ from how he would be born, how he would be raised by his heavenly father with the help of the angels, how his ministry would take fashion about his death and about his kingdom that will be established. And in fact, those are just a few of the prophecies contained in the book of Isaiah. And our intent is not to go through this list, but rather just to demonstrate how much detail is given in the prophecy of Isaiah about the Messiah. And remember how we saw on our first slide that his name means Yahweh is salvation, or salvation of Yah is the Y-I-A-H in the original Hebrew, or salvation is of the Lord. And Jesus' name means the Lord's salvation, or the Lord saves. And so we've got these names that are shared between Isaiah and Jesus Christ. And so much of what Isaiah prophesied was about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. How intriguing that would have been for the man Isaiah. We might think, well, if he spoke so much about what would happen to our Lord Jesus Christ, look at the details on there. Even that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb contained in the prophecy and shown fulfilled in the New Testament. But we know, because Peter tells us through divine inspiration, so God tells us, in the words that he breathed into Peter and that Peter recorded on the page for us, the following, concerning which salvation the prophets sought and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what time or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did point unto, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that should follow. We just saw all of that in the prophet Isaiah, didn't we? The sufferings of Christ were there. The glory that would follow, the establishment of the kingdom, a house of worship for all nations, Jesus ruling from Jerusalem. And it tells us in this passage that the prophets diligently searched out those things. So as the words came into Isaiah's mind, breathed there by God, and as he recorded them on the scrolls, he would look down and ponder what those things meant. What a blessing that you and I can look back on those things and we understand what those prophecies were about. Not only do we see the prophecies in Isaiah, but we see the fulfillment of those things in the Gospels, which we'll be considering some more in coming weeks. Reading on in 1 Peter, it's not only the prophets who desired to learn more about the Messiah in those days of old, to whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto you did they minister these things, which have now been announced unto you through them that preach the gospel unto you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, which things angels desire to look into. Well, isn't that fascinating? Even the angels, as these words were written, were interested in the things that were written. 
And so we make these observations. The prophets, like Isaiah, did not fully comprehend the things that they wrote down. And they were intrigued, just as we're intrigued when we read through the prophecy of Isaiah. We're intrigued about what these things could mean, and they pondered them. When the Holy Spirit, or God's power, inspired them to write things about Jesus, it is called the Spirit of Christ. It's still God's power, but because it's God's power inspiring them to write about Jesus, sometimes we have the prayers of Jesus recorded before he was even alive. It's incredible. And then we see the apostles taught Jesus out of the prophets, and the angels will stir, were still learning as they watched Jesus grow, minister, die, rise again, and ascend to their heavenly Father. Well, there we have a quick snapshot of the prophet Isaiah. And hopefully we've uh, whet your interest in that and that you'll pursue looking deeper into the prophecy of Isaiah. At this point, then, I'm going to turn the class over to Ron Kidd, who's going to take us through a key Bible theme on the New Covenant. Well, good evening, everybody. Nice to be back with you uh, again. We've got uh, a section tonight on the uh, New Covenant. And the, the first question that we want to ask um, about the covenant is, is, is what is a covenant? And if you went onto the internet, you'd come up with generally uh, a very common description of what a covenant is. It's an agreement, usually formal, between two or more persons to do or not to do something specified. That's very simple description or uh, of a covenant. When we look at the scriptures, the uh, Bible indicates to us that a covenant is sometimes called a testament. So we have an Old Testament or an Old Covenant and a New Testament, a New Covenant. What I'd like you to um, note particularly is that many times in scripture, a covenant is linked with a promise. And if you read Galatians chapter 3, verse 17, we're not concerned with the content of the, the verse, particularly at this stage. We'll look at that in a moment. But it says, the law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. And so the covenant that God had previously made was also a promise. And we'll see this popping up from time to time uh, in our uh, reading of the scripture. <clears throat> now, the idea of a new covenant obviously implies that there must have been at some point an old covenant. And in the book of Exodus, chapter 34 and verse 28, we read this. He was there with the Lord, that's Moses, 40 days and 40 nights. He did neither eat bread nor drink water. And he wrote upon the tables the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. And so the Ten Commandments 
are described as the covenant in the Old Testament. And it wasn't just the Ten Commandments which formed the, the covenant that God made with Israel. It was the Ten Commandments which was kind of the heartbeat of the whole Jewish law which was recorded for us in Leviticus, in Leviticus and, and Numbers and Deuteronomy. But what we find is that the, the Old Covenant had a very specific purpose. And we read of that in Galatians chapter 3 and at verse 24 and 25. The Apostle says, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. And that word guardian in the English Standard Version, it simply means somebody who controlled those that were under it. And that's what the law did. It controlled the Jews that were under the law of Moses. They were reminded at every turn of their life that they were sinners and subject to God's mercy. But Paul points out that that law, the Ten Commandments and the law of Moses, which the Ten Commandments was the heart of, was only there for a particular period of time. It was there until Christ came. And when the Lord Jesus Christ came, faith replaced the letter of the law. And Paul says, now by faith, we are no longer under a guardian. In other words, the old covenant ceased to exist. And, and that's confirmed for us in the letter to the Hebrews. And the writer there says, in that God says a new covenant, he made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. And the apostle wrote the letter to the Hebrews just prior to AD 70, when the Romans demolished the temple in Jerusalem and made it impossible for them to keep the law. And so it vanished in the keeping. And so there was an old covenant, but when it had run its course, when the Lord Jesus Christ came, it was replaced by a new covenant. Now, under normal circumstances, a new covenant is made after the old one. And yet, we have a, an interesting observation made by the apostle. And we ask the question, when was the new covenant first introduced? Well, let's go back to that verse in Galatians chapter 3. And the apostle tells us there that the law, which was the old covenant, came 430 years after, and it's in the context of the promises given to Abraham, the law came 430 years after, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. And so what the Apostle Paul is, 
is telling us here is that the new covenant was made 430 years before the old covenant was, but it didn't come in effect immediately. The law had to be an effective controller of Israel until the Lord Jesus Christ came. Now, what are we to understand by that 430 years? Well, if we go back 430 years from the giving of the law in the book of Exodus, chapter 20, it brings us exactly to the days of Abraham. And it's rather interesting there that we read in the days of Abraham, Genesis 15, verse 18, that the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your offspring, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And we've already covered those promises in, in one of our sessions on the covenant made to Abraham two weeks ago. But there we have a reference to an earlier covenant that was made to the law of God. It was made to Abraham 430 years before the law of Moses was given. And that covenant was extended to David, and that was dealt with last week, wasn't it, uh, by Don Luff. And, and there we read in Isaiah 55, Incline your ear and come unto me, hear and that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. And so God made a covenant with Abraham 430 years before the law of Moses was given. And then he expanded that covenant when he made certain promises, which were discussed last week, to David. And when we come to the New Testament, those two individuals are linked together by the father of John the Baptist in his prayer in Luke chapter 1. And he reads there, he says in his prayer, God has raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. As he spoke by the mouth of all his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. And so Zacharias links David and Abraham together with this covenant made before the law of Moses. And, and did you notice in that verse, we've underlined two words. There again, we see the word promise and the word covenant linked together. God's promise is his covenant with those that he makes his promise with. The next question that we want to ask is, why was a new covenant needed? What was wrong with the old covenant? Well, in another passage, which we don't have on the screen, Paul says there was nothing wrong with the old covenant. 
the problem lay with those that were trying to keep it. And, but in addition to that, the letter to the Hebrews in chapter 10, verse 1, tells us the function of the old covenant. He, he says, since the law has but, was but a, a shadow of good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. And so he said the old covenant was really a, a, a shadow. It, it was a, a reflection of something better. And the law itself, the apostle who wrote the Hebrews says, it could never make those who were subject to it perfect who drew near to God. The limitations lay in those who tried to keep it. And so we read that Jesus Christ came to confirm the covenant made to Abraham. Because of the limitations of the law, there was a need for a new covenant. And Christ, it says, became a servant to the circumcised, that is the Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the fathers, the patriarchs. And in order to confirm those promises, Jesus became a servant. What does that mean? Well, the letter to the Philippians elaborates on that. It says that Jesus took upon him the form of a servant. Why? Being found in fashion as a man, he, he humbled himself. And just like a servant, he became obedient to God, obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And so in order that the new covenant could become effective, the letter to the Philippians tells us that there had to be a death involved in the making of that covenant. Now, that's what the apostle says in Hebrews chapter 9. He says, for this cause, Jesus is the mediator of the New Testament or the New Covenant, that by means of death, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is no strength at all while a testator liveth. Now, we know that, don't we, uh, in, in today's language. When a will is developed today by a living individual, that will doesn't become effective. People who are recorded in that will can't be the beneficiaries until the will maker has died. And that's, in effect, what... The apostle is telling us in Hebrews chapter 9. The New Testament could only be ratified. It could only become enforced 
and by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we think about the Lord Jesus Christ, just before he was about to be crucified, he sat down with his disciples, and as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so the sacrifice of Jesus Christ ratified that covenant. It made it possible to pass on those promises which God had made to individuals who would respond to it. What did he pass on? Well, he passed on the forgiveness of sins to begin with. That's a very important aspect of life. We're all sinners. We've seen this in our uh, seminars. How sin affects us all every day. But the sacrifice of Jesus has provided forgiveness. But how do we benefit from that forgiveness? Well, it's by becoming related to the new covenant. And you go back to that passage in Hebrews chapter 9. He says, for this cause, Jesus is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. And so the, the benefit of the new covenant is extended to those who are called. Now, there's nothing mysterious about that calling. The, the apostle, again, in writing to the Thessalonian faithful, he says, whereunto he called you by our gospel to obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we are called through our reading of the gospel message. That's what the parable of the sower is all about. The distribution of the seed, the word of God, on the various soils, the various ground that the seed falls upon. Some listen, some discard it. Some listen for a time being, and then when it becomes difficult, give it up. But there are those who receive it into a good and honest heart. Those who are called are called by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we need to understand what that gospel is. And we re really, we've come full circle because that gospel was preached to Abraham. That was the promise that God made to Abraham. That was the promise, the covenant that God made with Abraham. The scripture Galatians 3 verse 8 says, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preach before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, in thee shall all nations be blessed. So how do we come, become part of that new covenant? Well, we've got to hear the gospel and we've got to act upon it. 
For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male nor female, you are all one in Christ. And if you be Christ's, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We can be part of that new covenant if we hear the gospel message and we heed what it has to say and become related to it through baptism. So for the past four weeks, we've considered several covenants. God made a promise to Eve, he made a promise to Abraham, and he made a promise to David. And the blessings promised in these covenants that God made can be ours. This is only possible by, first of all, becoming familiar with the gospel. And that's a good starting point for every one of us. Well, we've come to the end of the 47th seminar. And God willing, next week, we're going to move on from the prophet Isaiah to the next prophet in the Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah. And in the section Key Bible Themes, we're going to be looking at Prophecy Fulfilled in ancient times. Prophecies fulfilled in the past. We look forward to that very much. We remind everybody of the various links that are available to us so that we can uh, review perhaps what has been said tonight and go over some of the material that has been said in the past. And we hope that you take advantage of the uh, opportunity to do this. Uh, on our website.